Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Episode 18, why percent correct is just not good enough. So I know you were all expecting an episode on Consequence Matters, but after recording this uniquely eye-opening episode with Dr. Rick Kubina, we decided it was just too good to shelf for another day. So here it is. We start our journey today into precision teaching and are honored to introduce our guest of the day, Dr. Rick Kubina, who has been dispelling the myth that percent correct is the only option for measurement. As most of you know, percent correct is the most widely accepted measure in so many professions. So we have summoned the ultimate expert in precision teaching who has introduced and schooled so many professionals outside the world of ABA even to making the shift from just accepting percent correct as the end all be all and introducing precision teaching to the field of speech therapy, OT educators, surgeons, and probably a lot more since I've talked to him last. Anyway, just a gentle reminder again that we are not here to make anyone wrong or right, but instead shed light on a different perspective. So hopefully our conversations are continuing to spark the three C's of curiosity to learn more, consider another approach, and comfort with the discomfort of collaboration. Mandy, do you want to introduce our guest? Yes, um, such a thrill to have Rick Cabena with us. I found my way to precision teaching really because of Rick and uh, travelled to Chicago when I was living in Indiana to attend one of your workshops, Rick, at IPTC in 2014. So it's been such a journey since that time and I just am absolutely honoured to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you both for having me. That was such a warm welcome. I want to be a guest every week. (laughs) We would love it. (laughs) So um, Rick and I actually met, how long ago did we meet, Rick? Like two, three years ago. It was three. Because you had contacted me. You were like, oh my gosh, an OT who knows precision teaching. And I was so enormously flattered. And then you were like, you know, would you like to introduce it to the OT world? And I was like, uh... Yeah, <laughs> and then I lost my every nerve. Um, so tell us about how you started in precision teaching. Where did everything start, I guess? That's a good story. I started back as an undergrad in uh, 1985, so I'm going to date myself here. I grew up in a place called Austintown, which is the bigger city would be Youngstown, Ohio, and there was a university there called Youngstown University. So is this green undergrad, I go to this program, and I just happened to run into a professor that was teaching precision teaching. And of course, this program had a number of people who also taught behavior analysis, so I was exposed to those two disciplines, and of course, other disciplines as well. But I gravitated towards those, and it was just dumb luck. You know, you just end up somewhere, you meet somebody, and and they turn your life around completely. So to make a long story short, when I graduated with my BA in psychology, which is really a preparatory degree because you can't do a lot with it, he said, you know, you want to go to Ohio State. There's this guy up there named John Cooper. And I said, oh, okay. So I, I applied Ohio State, and then I get John Cooper's advisor, and again, just dumb luck. I didn't know who John Cooper was. I didn't know, uh, you know, I worked with Tim Heron, Bill Heward, Diane Sin, all of these uh, these great people, and it was just luck. So, you know, I, I went out, uh, got my master's degree, practiced for a few years, and was being successful because I was doing the things I was told. And then I said, you know what, I want to share this with more people because I found out that a lot of people didn't know about what I was doing. So I went back, worked with uh, John Cooper again, and I got my doctorate. And from there, I've been a professor, and uh, that's my story. Wow. So, Mandy, how did you meet Rick? Well, I was um, based in Indiana at an ABA program. I had already got my BCBA, and I have a daughter with autism, and uh Moved from Australia to America to um, base myself in an ABA school there. And Patrick McGreevy was there, actually, and, um, you know, doing some precision teaching for ADLs, really. 
And uh, there was a little bit of work being done with Morningside and, and MathFact PT. But in their main program, I couldn't understand why if they thought precision teaching was so important in these two area of domains, like academics and, you know, daily living, why were they not incorporating it into their language and other programs? And I was, I was really frustrated. But really, the main reason that I travelled to IPTC was because I started doing some precision teaching myself at home with my daughter. And every day I would wake up and she'd say, I want to do PT. I want to do PT. And, you know, Skinner always said the student is always right. And it's because her schedule of reinforcement was so thick, you know, how much she was getting rewarded and how many opportunities she was having to respond. She absolutely loved it. And so um, I traveled to Chicago to IPTC to really to go to a, one of Rick's workshop and to meet Karen Pryor, one of my fans. And I just happened to meet uh, Kendra Newsom and Kim Millie Behrens there. They were looking for affiliates to train and that's how I found my way to fit learning. So really, and Rick, I, he probably doesn't even remember, but maybe in the bar that night or sometime I signed him up for being my chart father. And um, in the precision teaching community, they have this really awesome, I'm very new to this community, but there has a lot of history in this amazing field. And they have this really beautiful supervision model where they just, you know, they take people under their wing and they guide them and there's so much to learn. And so, yeah, I was just very honoured to have Rick as my chart father. And, um, and I follow everything that he does. And I just can't believe that he's found his way to this podcast and agreed to do this for us because, you know, traditionally our field and the field of OT um, has used percent correct. And I never understood that as an outsider to this field that came to this field because of my daughter. Um, you know, I had read a lot about Skinner and about rate of response. Um, how all of a sudden our field had moved to percent correct, Rick? And perhaps, you know, that would be a really amazing story because this is not the primary measure that our field of, of behavior analysis started out its life in, correct? That's right. So for all of your listeners, no matter what your background and discipline is, you might say or think, wow, this isn't a really fun topic to talk about, percent correct, it's a measure. But what we measure is so critically important for us to understand what's happening with this human we are working with and trying to help. All of us are in a helping profession, and our job is to apply some type of intervention to help that person live their life better. And, and whatever parameter you are doing, if it's you know something that's a discrete skill where you're trying to help someone dress better or ambulate or whatever it is, or if it's something more global where you're working on communication or some behavioral skill, whether it's small or large, you do an intervention and you need to understand is what I'm doing working. And if we can all start with that premise, then we can all agree that the measures we take are so important because if we don't know what's going on, then a couple things can happen. Number one, bad things can happen, which would be the client is lingering. You don't know why this intervention that the research said it would work, your peers said it would work, you've done it before and it's worked, but it's not working for this person. Well, if you can't measure that and understand what's exactly going on, or your measures are telling you, hey, this seems to be working okay. You know, you could get false positives, there's false negatives, and if any of those things happen, you're in trouble because you're going to waste the client's time and you're going to waste your own time and ultimately you're not going to get the outcome that you wanted. So uh, percent correct, as you pointed out, Mandy, uh, when behavior analysis specifically started off in the laboratory, you know, if you turn the hands of time back, it started in the laboratory and the measures were every time that if it, let's say they were working with a pigeon, if a pigeon would peck a disc then that was recorded. That response was recorded in time. And what you had was a very simple measure. You just counted, well, how many responses did this pigeon do within a period of time? And that is called frequency. Some people also call it rate, but it's better referred to as frequency. Uh, More scientists use that term, cycles per minute, or cycles per time unit, I should say. 
And uh, when behavior analysis shifted from the laboratory to working in applied settings, the apparatus, or apparati, I should say, use the plural term, that were used with the animals didn't follow. And then we were observing people. And once we started observing people, you know, we had to calculate, well, how well is the person doing? And percent correct is just a super easy thing to do. You count how many things that the person did, and then you take a ratio of that, and there's your number. And it's been popular across, I would say, all fields. You look in education, you look in psychology, you know, social work, anyone who's working with people, it's just a common way of, of looking at inf- uh, uh, information. So that's the story and that's how we got to where we are. One thing I want, I've been meaning to ask is why, you know, it, it comes from behavior analysis, but not all ABAs use it. And from what I understand, it's also not part of the certification process. You know, learning precision teaching is not part of that anymore. Is there a reason that ABAs don't tend to use it? Precision teaching started with a professor. Well, before he was a professor, he's one of uh, B.F. Skinner's students. His name was Ogden Lindsley. And he realized that one thing that was really amazing about B.F. Skinner's approach to understanding human behavior was the measurement system that he used. And this measurement system had a standard visual display, meaning everybody who sees this is going to instantly know what that picture is telling them because it was standard. And it had measures that were standard across everyone using them. We just talked about frequency. That frequency measured, if you went from lab to lab to lab, everyone would have that same measure. So Lindsley built this approach, this, this systematic method, this, this, it's really a system called precision teaching, And his thought was, I'm going to use this to help parents and then also to help teachers use this measurement system and help modify behavior. Back then in the 60s, it was called behavior modification, 60s and 70s. And the thought process was, let's use terms and and procedures that parents can use, that teachers can use, because... Uh, in the science, you know, we have a lot of jargon, and you, know, you you talk to a diverse audience. You have OTs, you have behavior analysts, and each one of those groups are going to have their own scientific jargon. That's just how it is when you're a science. And if you want the parents to use that, sometimes it's hard to explain that jargon so that they can understand what they're doing. So. Ogden, or Og as he would have you call him, said, let's just create this system, let's make it simple, let's make it practical, and let's get it out there so that we can help people uh, change behavior. And uh, precision teaching was never really part of behavior analysis. I mean, there have been behavior analysts who gravitated towards it, but there have been a lot of other people who aren't necessarily precision teachers that have used it. Uh, Back in precision teaching's heyday, which would have been the 70s, when it was in schools, you could find all sorts of people using it. And the great thing about precision teaching is it's not discipline-specific. Because it's a measurement decision-making system, you could use it with anything, which I'm sure your audience would be, or I should say your audience is, since you have multiple audiences here, uh, would appreciate because this fine-grained measurement system helps you understand the data you're collecting and helps you make better decisions. And at the end of the day, that's what we all need to do in an applied setting make better decisions. Was it somewhat of a way to transition from percent correct? You know, precision teaching, is that a nice transition? That was part of it. It wasn't only it. There were a lot of problems, and those problems, unfortunately, still persist today. For example, Ogden was really a character, and he created something that he called the dead man's test. 
And that dead man's test was a whimsical name. And the thought behind it was, if you're going to select a behavior and a person who's not alive can do it, you probably shouldn't pick that behavior to work on. (laughs) And that notion of selecting targets, you know, descriptive targets that convey what is it we're actually working on? What is the specific movement or action that we want the person to engage in? That's part of the system. Another part of the system would be, you know, moving into the percent correct, how can we be more sensitive when we measure the certain behaviors that the people were working with? And the problem with percent correct, which we, you know, we could dive into that a little bit more, is just to give you a, a quick preview of that conversation, is although it's a number, the number can mean lots of things. And based on that percentage, if all three of us had 100%, we'll just make this easy. You know, if Mandy was one out of one and, you know, Dee, you were five out of five and I was three out of three, you know, each one of us has 100%, but, you know, those numbers are different. And we can even magnify that more. Let's say, Aditi, you were 20 out of 20, Mandy was one out of one, and I was seven out of seven. You know, we have a pretty big difference between Mandy, myself, and you, but it's all going to be 100% correct. And Ogden realized that, and the precision teachers at the time realized that, and they wanted to take care of that. The other part of precision teaching that came about was this chart, which is called the standard acceleration chart, and it's based, it's called a ratio chart. And a lot of people may have seen some of these because, you know, all of us were, at the time of this recording, we're coming out of the pandemic. I mean, you know, it's still there, but during the height of the pandemic, people could see many displays that had this ratio um, on the vertical axis. Some people call it semi-log, but it's better to call it a ratio graph. And what was great about this particular visual display is it has all of these properties that it does to the behavior that help or whatever we're tracking to help us understand is this a big gain or is it a little gain? If it's a little gain, then we need to get there and help that person and do something different. If it's a big gain, then we need to clap our hands, we need to celebrate with a learner, and we need to keep on going. So those, in all of those, those three things that I just mentioned to you led to helping you make decisions. Should you keep doing this or should you do something else? So that system, as I'm describing it, it can be taken on and thought of simplistically, but if you start doing it, depending on you know how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, it can get really complicated very fast. But to use it, uh, depending on how you want to use it, you know, the good news is this system has been used with parents. This system has been taught to children who are in kindergarten and they've been able to use it. And if kindergarten students can use it, then you know adults can use it, regardless of, of where you're from. So at any rate, that's how precision teaching came to be. And you know, behavior analysts, some will use it, some won't. Well, I would say probably fewer use it than more, but it's out there and it's just waiting for you to discover it. So when is percent correct okay? Because I know OTs are thinking this right now, going, so do we just abandon percent correct when everyone uses it? Yeah, that is a really good question. One thing that I would say is if anyone ever says, hey, don't ever do this thing, I mean, unless it's something bad like ingesting poison or something like that, you probably should be cautious. And I campaign against not using percent correct. But that doesn't mean there aren't times when you could and should use it. But I I like to be careful with that because then people will accuse you of being hypocritical. But here's the thing with percent correct. All percent correct is, is it's math. And you can't get mad at math. Like if if we do long division and come up with a number, would anyone ever get mad at you doing long division? Or, you know, if you use a correlation, 
Would anyone ever get mad at you using a correlation? The math is going to come out. It's going to give you a number. Now, when you apply that is the real issue. So here is when what I argue against. If you are monitoring a behavior across time, that is not the time you should use percent. Because here's why. Today's Monday, and I get whatever the number is, I get, let's say it's 60%. And then, you know, Tuesday comes around, I get 63%. Wednesday comes around, I get 70%. Thursday comes around, I get 85%. Friday comes around, wow, I'm at 90%. Yay, I'm doing great. Well, the problem is, if you look at the numbers that go into that, that can be easily manipulated, or whether it's manipulated or not, you can be fooled, because a percentage is based off of counts. And let's say what happens across time is you gave the person more items to respond to on Monday, and progressively, you gave them less items to respond to. So even if you're not aware of that, your percentages are going up and it looks like, hey, I'm doing really good. But when you monitor behavior across time and you use percent correct, you can fool yourself. And not just that, you know, we wanna be in a, we're applied scientists. And as applied scientists, we need to be honest with one another. We need to be able to know what did you do? Should I replicate what you did? How powerful is your effect? If you're using percent, I have no way of knowing that because I don't have access to your original counts of data. So let's start off there by answering your question on, you know, those are the times when you should not be using percent correct. Now, uh, when might there be times when you would want to use percent correct? You know, percent correct is used as a way of describing numbers where, like, like how many people have red hair in the world? It's one to two percent. Which, by the way, how many people have autism in the world? Right now, the statistics tell us it's about the same, one to two percent. And when we use percent in that fashion to help us look at this number of how many, you know, what's, what's the ratio, that's very useful. Maybe you have a client and you're working with that client and that client has 100 goals and, and you want to get through those 100 goals over an, a year. How many goals do you have done for your client? Well, you could report we only have 20% of the goals done. You know, that's going to convey, it's going to communicate to whoever is listening to that. Immediately they'll get that. Oh, okay. So, you know, 20%, you still need 80% more. So if it's a hundred, you can readily transform that into a number. It comes out to 20 and uh, it's easy to grasp that and to talk about that. So th that's really the distinction. And I'd also say this too. We in precision teaching have a measure that's called acceleration. And this measure tells us how fast is the behavior changing. And guess how we report that? We report it in percentage of weekly growth. So if someone's behavior is doubling, we say that behavior has 100% growth each week. And in that sense, percent is 100% useful. See what I did there? I love it. Yes. I'm so glad you took that pause because that was the most perfect answer. And I really wanted to make sure we addressed that because I didn't want OTs to feel like they've abandoned everything, you know, and start fresh. And just to add to that. So as an OT, we do a lot of home modifications. And I had an OT reach out to me and said, you know what, how do I measure this? And because she was trying to figure out using the chart. And I said, well, I don't think it's applicable here. I'll have to check with my experts, but I don't think it is because she had to make 10 modifications, let's just say. And I said, just use a checklist and then use percent correct. And I was like, oh, I need to ask somebody, you know, when it's okay to use percent correct. So based on what you just said, I think that would be okay, correct? Here's what I would suggest. Just don't convert it to percent. Just use the count. So in this instance, if you have a checklist, having your actual counts, even if you don't time it, 
that's always going to be more informative than when you convert it. Once you convert it, it turns into what's called dimensionless, a dimensionless quantity. So there's, there's two terms here. A dimensional quantity is something that has some dimension. For example, everyone who's listening to this can understand measurement in terms of you know, height. How do you measure someone's height? How do you measure someone's width? How do you measure someone's weight? Right away, you're gonna have dimensional counts. You have these numbers that are gonna tell you, oh, okay, this is what this is. If you are counting something, the dimension you have is countability. And if you have this checklist, just leave it in terms of a count. So let's say that I have a checklist and it's a, I don't know, a showering or a dressing checklist and you have 10 things that you have to check off. If one day, you know, on that list, depending on how people would count that, let's say you get through the first two items. If you report that as two and zero, that is so much better than reporting that as 20% because the 20% assumes those other eight steps are wrong and you got 20% correct and 80% incorrect, but the person never did those. Why are you counting that against the person? Whereas if you just have two and you just give them the number, I can look at that and we can all look at that and say, oh, okay, this person has two. And then across time, you know, if the person had three and one, uh, three and two, those actual counts are going to tell you so much more and give you such a better understanding of what's going on with the person you're working with than if you just convert it to percent. So all of your OTs, the good news is just don't take the step where you convert it into percent and just work with the counts because it'll be more informative to you and you'll be able to understand at a, a deeper level how well is your client responding to whatever intervention you are applying. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for clarifying that. It, it absolutely makes sense to me now um, that percent is really highlighting correct versus incorrect. Yes. And a checklist would highlight the number completed per se, for an example. So thank you. And I'm going to stop hogging you and let Mandy <laughs> chime in here. <laughs> well, yeah, Rick, I guess um, before I found my way to PT, I had... Uh, you know, people said a lot of negative things to me about this crazy blue chart, they would call it, um, the standard cell ration chart. And in particular, well, my ex-supervisor, who is a, you know, a doctor of behaviour analysis, you know, thought I had joined some crazy cult when I found my way to position <laughs> teaching. Um, why is it that there is this, this fear or this resistance to approach a chart that in many other fields, right, um, in engineering and medicine, et cetera, these charts are just accepted as part, as a tool of the field. Why is it that there is such resistance, do you think, around the standard acceleration chart? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And, I mean, this is true for everyone. If you are in a particular, I mean, in science it shouldn't be this way, but it is because we're all humans. We have these groups that we all attend to and that we're all part of. And it's funny whenever I hear that, that cult notion, it wasn't too long ago when if you were just a behavior analyst, you were in a cult. Because mainstream psychology is not behavior analysis. Now, there are more and more people who are becoming behavior analysts. But still, if you went to APA and looked at who are the vast majority of, of the denizens, the practitioners are not going to be behavior analysts. You know, it's just one group within one group within one group. And precision teachers happen to adopt a method of applying the highest measurement standards so that they can make the best decisions. And if people want to call that a cult, then sign me up as the cult leader because we should all be behind that. And it's hard for people that are in a particular group and they have been told this is the way things should be done. And depending on who you are, like I, I can really uh, appreciate this because we all wear different hats. One of the hats that I read, you know, I'm, a, I'm a college professor, I work at Penn State University and I teach a class on reading. And I happen to have an approach 
that's very effective, that's very research-based, but yet there are so many more teachers that are outside of my field and professors that reject wholeheartedly the things that I teach. And you would ask yourself, well, we have all of this evidence, we have all this data, why are all these people rejecting this? And in many cases, using these methods that are disproven. And the dynamics behind that are, you know, it's, it's all, it gets to, that's the group that has all of these different ways of promoting the things that they're doing. Like that, that group I was telling you about, these, these professors, you know, I work at Penn State University. These other professors work at Penn State University. You could find people at prestigious universities telling you to do things. And you know, if you're a, a student and you uh, go through, you trust your professor, you trust the institution. And what you're doing isn't necessarily completely wrong. You know, maybe there's some percentage of students that it works with. And those students that it doesn't work with, you're told reasons why it doesn't work. So you have these self-fulfilling prophecies. It's very hard being a scientist. And if you are a true scientist, that means that you must always be tentative in your conclusions. For example, I adopt that as the way I live my life. If something came around that was better than precision teaching or said the precision teaching was wrong, I would have to leave precision teaching and do this other thing. That's just the way it works in the world of science. You cannot be beholden to anything. And that's hard. It's a, it's a bitter pill for some people to swallow because they become very comfortable in what they're doing. You know, early on, you talked about the three C's. And unfortunately, not everyone has that attitude. And when you talk to some people, some people get pretty defensive and they'll argue with you. Maybe they'll tell you you're stupid and we know how to do things. And oh, you people over there, you don't know what you're talking about. It feels good to be in the in crowd and to know that you, know, you have the keys to enlightenment. But unfortunately, if you have that kind of attitude, you are going to miss a lot of what the science is telling you and being open-minded and again open-mindedly skeptical because you can't believe everything out there there are some things that as we know just aren't things you should get behind so uh, you know you ask your question is a very complex one and i hope that i, I answered it well but you know, the bottom line gets to what how receptive are you to new information but then again you know being skeptical as you have that and it's hard to sometimes look at other disciplines especially if you're in a crowd in this other crowd are telling you you know don't pay attention to those people they don't know what they're talking about we know what we're talking about and and that happens in every discipline because again we're humans and it's hard to you know adopt a scientific view like that for everyone. So Rick, the, the next thing then I, I really want to, I guess, because I know this sounds like a, you know, an overstatement, but really finding my way to precision teaching and everything that I've learned to date really changed the trajectory of my life and every student I've worked with, my own daughter's life. And I can't ever imagine moving away from what I've learned from the chart. So I want to uh, reach out and, and have people that are listening get super excited about using this uh, this blue chart. And I wanted just to get your feedback um, to motivate people to say, what data do you need to collect to be able to use a standard acceleration chart? And how easy is it to learn to chart? I guess I can answer that because I teach people to do it every day, not professionals, but parents and kids. So talk a little bit about, you know, people that are interested to learn more, how easy is it for them to start putting their programs on a chart? And lastly, because it's a three-pronged question, how could they learn to do that? Okay, two-parter. Number one, like I said earlier, it depends on how much sophistication do you want out of this tool, out of this procedure, out of this system. I have worked with people literally off the streets that are RBTs, that stands for Registered Behavior Technician, and you know they have a, a maybe a high school diploma, just learning about behavior analysis, and I show them, here's how you count things, here's how you put it on this chart. If the line's going up to this, it's good. If that line's going down, it's bad. 
five to 10 minutes, they're ready to go. It literally is that simple. And, you know, kids, young children, this can be explained to. Anyone that has the ability to understand a graph, if you can understand how a graph works, you can use the chart. Many in your audience right now can do that because they're counting things already. They just have to put that on the chart, so they just have to learn how to use the chart. And if you really want to do, be simple and just get charting, we have this chart that, you know, there's two kinds of, of varieties of chart. One would be called a count per minute, and the other one would be called uh, a count per day. In the count per day chart, just start with that. It starts at one. You don't have to worry about timing anything. Whatever you count, you just put on the chart. So you teach people, if you have things that you wanna measure that are corrects, that's a dot. If you have things that are incorrects, that's an X. So whatever you count for the day, that whatever your measure is, you put it on there, and then you start charting. So you figure out, you know, what's your goal? What do you want them to get to? If you want them to get to 10 out of 10, then you, you know, just draw a little line across the chart. You know, there's different symbols to do it, but if we wanna make this really simple, we just draw this little box across the chart and say, here's where you wanna to get to, here's your count, go. So what I just described, if you're following my description, you can start precision teaching. It can be that easy to start. Fantastic. And so along the x-axis is days yep. and the y-axis is count. So you, all you have to do is count responses, which means you have to be observing behavior and, and counting responses. Yep. And you can't count errors. We also count prompts, which is a really nice thing to put on chart because you can see how fading your prompts is working. Um, and how would people find their way to being trained as a precision teacher to use the chart? That's a good question. And it's one of the reasons why I believe precision teaching isn't as popular as it could be. I truly believe if there were more resources out there, we would have more people charting. And you know, I don't have these, you know, so there's some people that have conspiracy theories and like, oh, well, these <laughs> people are pushing us down. And yeah, you can find some people out there that don't know anything about precision teaching, but because it might threaten what they're doing, they might say, don't do that stuff. But I, I think there's fewer of those people. It's just a lack of knowledge. Like both of you, when you told your story, you didn't know anything about this. But when you found out about it and you started using it, you were instantly convinced. And that was my story. You know, when I was a, an undergrad and I went to uh, work with Steve Graff, who was my chart parent, I was using precision teaching to help myself become a better golfer because back then I was golfing. So that might have been a selfish reason, but that was the gateway into this science and it helped me. I was like, wow, if I measure these behaviors, I, can be, I was becoming a better golfer. And that feeling of empowerment, that feeling of here's this thing that's helping me and it's visual and I can see it and it's telling me how long it's going to take for me to reach these particular goals, that was valuable to me. But you know, I learned because I got lucky. You all learned because you happened to stumble across people, you know, whatever sets you down your path. Whether it was reading something, whether it was a personal connection, you all look for more information. I would recommend for people that are interested, I mean, you are all doing a great service. If you're listening to this podcast and being exposed to thinkers such as yourselves and your other guests, that can help ignite some curiosity. And if you have curiosity, you would then look at, well, what are some basics that I could pick up on. There are some sources uh, in on the internet that if you just, you know, type in precision teaching, you'll find articles, you'll find some videos. There have been some people in the past that have done webinars that will explain basics. Then again, you know, if you wanted to start paying some money, there are books out there. You know, shameless plug, I have a publishing company called Greatness Achieve Publishing Company. If you click that in there, you know, I have I write books and I created this publishing company so that 
like Ogden Lindsley, you know, he created the chart. He had his own company called Behavior Research Company because he didn't want anyone messing with the things that he was creating. And that's my publishing company. I want to say what I want to say. I don't want it going through editors. And, you know, we have small print runs, but that's something um, that, that people can have. And I'm not the only person out there writing books. You know, if you go to Amazon, Kent Johnson is a fabulous writer. You know, he has books out there. There was another recent book that just came out with Malcolm Neely, Owen White, and Peggy White. Norris Herring was on there. So there are books that you, you can read. And, you know, some of those books are going to talk about precision teaching. Some of those books are going to tell you this is how you do precision teaching. You both mentioned conferences. We are going to be getting back into the swing of hopefully seeing each other in person. But right now, there are conferences that you could attend that would be live. There are people that do workshops. There are consultants out there. There's a whole... If you wanted information out there, you could get it. Now, what we don't have is we don't have a lot of professors out there. So if you're like, well, I'm going to go to my local university, the chances are you're not going to find anything. When I know almost all the professors teaching precision teaching, that's a problem. There should be people that come up to me that I have no idea. Like if you went to a conference for occupational therapy There'd be so many professors across the United States doing that. There's no way you would know who they all are. And it's the same thing with practitioners. But that's not the case with precision teachers. It's still a very small group. If you attend the precision teaching conference and you went there for a couple years, you're going to see the same faces. You're going to quickly you know, learn who's who. And that's because it's a small group and hasn't reached the proportions that it had once in the past. So at any rate, there are sources out there. And depending on if you want to dip your toes in the water, just start listening to other podcasts if you wanted some information. Just see who's doing things, like what videos are out there, what are there some articles out there that explain things, and that will help you with your journey. And if, uh, I don't know how I forgot this, if you're on Facebook, uh, or even Instagram or some of these, there are communities of people and you can lurk. You don't even need to be someone who's posting and see what they're saying and look at the charts that they are sharing. And that way you'll start getting a better sense of what's being done. And you can also, if this is something that intrigues you, then you can start off small, try doing some things. And then if you really get uh, interested, you can take more steps to learn more about it. Isn't there a directory of precision teachers that's published? Uh, There is. uh, Malcolm Neely does that. Yeah, Malcolm. Yeah, and he publishes that in Facebook. There is a group that's called the Standard Celebration Society, and he'll periodically post it in there. Great. So we're going to put all of those things in our resources, including references to your book, which is sitting right next to me here. Yay. Um, and, you ha- and you also have a recent book out too, right? I do. My journey through precision teaching, I have had blogs. I've had three different blogs. And this book, I call it Reflections on Precision Teaching. And it's wonderful because what I do is I take these blogs that I've done throughout, not all of them, but selected ones, And I say, you know, this is when I wrote this blog. This is what I learned about this blog. In every single blog that I went through, you know, I edited it. I updated all the pictures. And, you know, I made a couple funny statements in there because, you know, when you blog, you tend to be casual. And I had some references in there that, you know, if you reference some pop culture thing that's going on in 2000, it doesn't necessarily age well. So, you know, (laughs) I talk about that in there. But it, it has been... Uh, It was wonderful to be able to write that book and talk about all of these. When you blog, too, you're writing to people that aren't necessarily in the in crowd. So people that wanted to understand and, and start learning about, you know, why should you use the chart and why shouldn't you use? Like, I have a whole chapter devoted to that. And explaining, and and I have chapters where I talk about percent correct, and I lay out in detail, I show examples, and uh, so that's what that book is, and uh, yeah, so that would be great if if you were interested in that, and that is also my first book that we published digitally, so that's that's offered uh, digitally and um, in, in paper. And the other thing you have is that Central Reach has 
an area for professional development as well. And there's a lot of precision teaching, uh, what would you call them, podcasts or, or webinars on there yes. as well. What's that called? We gave you a, a plug last week in our, our last episode about central reach and finding your way there. What is the name of the area? It's called the Institute, the Central Reach Institute. And yeah, fantastic. Yeah, in our institute, like you said, if you were to just Google that, we just have a rich library of people. Yeah, fantastic. And for any BCBAs that are wanting to get some CEUs, are fantastic. I think I maybe watched 20 hours <laughs> in the last few weeks to get my CEUs in. And uh, all of them in precision teaching, which is so awesome because uh, the chart is no longer taught. It was taught when I did my BCBA, but it's no longer taught. So, But you can still get your CEUs in that area and, um, and learn more. Another thing that I really wanted to, this is not often said actually, but one of the things that I absolutely love about, uh, because I come from a traditional ABA background and 2014 I found my way to precision teaching and changed my life forever, but one of the amazing things about using a standard acceleration chart is just the record keeping that it provides for multiple professionals working with a client. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that, Rick? When you pick up a chart and you look at a chart, it tells you a lot, right, about a student. First of all, what the program is, how it's being taught, how long it's been taught for. Can you talk to a little bit about how a standard acceleration chart is not just obviously a place to keep data, but a tool to make decisions about and to look at the learning history um, of a student? I would just end up repeating what you said. Uh, <laughs> okay. You actually sure. described it very well. We need to have records. We need to understand what has happened in the past. And we have a convention that we call a condition change line. Anytime you make a change, you are experimenting and you're trying to bring about a better outcome. All of that's going to be visual. I created a, a company with my co-founder and we had a, a platform, a software platform called Chartlytics. Now that that platform was acquired by Central Reach, which is why uh, you know, I'm working with Central Reach now, and now it's called Precision X. So you, this can be done digitally. Now that's a paid solution. There are some other solutions out there that if you want to, again, dip your toes in the water, you can get it for free. Kent Corso, I forget what his, his chart is called, but he has a free chart for an iPad. And you know, there are some Excel files out there, but all of these, whether it's digital or paper, as you mentioned, will have this wonderful record and you can see what has been tried in the past. And that's so useful because depending on you know, where you are, if you're in a clinic or a school setting, oftentimes when you get someone who's been in a system, you're starting from ground zero. What a waste of time for you to yeah. figure out, oh, I have to do this and this again, where if someone just showed you, here's all the things we tried, then you can try new things. And so that record-keeping aspect of the chart is very valuable and will help you save time and help save whoever you're working with time. Yeah, and one of the things that I've learned through Aditi and I guess now my exposure and working close with some OTs is that frequently their sessions are only run weekly. Mm -hmm. And so we often have the luxury as behavior analysts to be working with our clients every day or multiple times a day. But the awesome thing about a standard acceleration chart is it's a visual picture that you immediately open the chart, you look at it, and you can see exactly what's been occurring. And if you're only working with a client, sometimes Aditi tells me that I have a heart attack when I hear this, but they might only have 15 or 20 minutes to work with a student once a week. But if you can open a chart and see their learning picture and the trajectory of, you know, what's been occurring in weeks to come, it tells you, should tell you exactly what to do in that time that you have. And so I think, you know, this is for those of you that have difficulties maintaining, you know, if you're freaking out about keeping data and having to chart it, literally you need a pencil and a piece of paper and it takes you seconds to count the data and chart it. Once you learn how to chart, it's very easy to do. My mother can do it. <laughs> My daughter can, with, with autism can do it. But what it is, is this amazing record because when you are, you know, I've worked in this field for 17 years now and had lots of different systems of maintaining, you know, how to work with a student and how to maintain records and data. The standard acceleration chart will change your life uh, for lots of different reasons, but one of them just to remind you exactly where you are with the student and what to do next. 
And so, uh, you know, it's another another reason that OTs can, uh, you know, reorganise the way that they um, work with their students if they use a standard celebration chart for a program. There's so many other questions that I want to ask you, Rick, but one that I is really, really dear to my heart because I guess I come from a traditional ABA background when I say that, discrete trial instruction. Uh, and one of the things that I have come to learn about all of the work that I've done under Dr. Kimberly Behrens is to learn more about mastery. And that's why I love precision teaching so much because, uh, you know, traditional ABA and perhaps Aditi could add something in terms of when an OT will say a program is master. But, you know, a traditional criteria in a discrete trial instruction program might be, you know, 90% correct across two sessions and then a third session, you know, with a novel therapist, say, with 90% or better. And I watched that type of programming over long periods of time. And then I came to a standard acceleration chart, uh, the precision teaching community. I learned a lot more about mastery of uh, performance. Just wondering if there's if there's something that you can say to sort of, uh, I guess, as information to people who might be listening here about what a standard acceleration chart helps you uh, decide when a goal is mastered. That's another two-parter. Number one yeah. <laughs> is what's the measure you're using and how do you define mastery and how would that be displayed on the chart? And oftentimes, you know, you said 90%. Most of the time, it's 80%. That's the criteria for mastery. Yeah. You know, eight out of 10 times, which is something I cannot get behind. I've never been able to get behind. And this is the thing. If you're an OT, you know, I, I wanted to spend some time uh, telling some OT stories. I don't know if I'll have the time uh, to do that. But I have just such great respect for OTs. I've, I've been a consultant for a school called the Vista School, which is in Hershey, Hershey PA. And you know, for now, it's been probably uh, 17, 18 years. And I've worked with OTs the entire time. Now, the OTs that I've worked with, they have a really tough job. You know, they're, they're working with yeah. behaviors that, uh, you know, they have expertise to help work on cleaning yourself for example that's a tough skill if you're going to clean yourself you know after you use the bathroom would anyone say you know what if you're 80% accurate that's cool <laughs> yeah, nah and and how about um feeding yourself you know putting the the spoon in your mouth getting the food in your mouth well you know if 80% of the time you do it that's good enough when you take a step back and consider the 80% mastery, it's absurd to have that as a goal and just have 100% all the time. If you're dealing with mastery, and I'm, I would imagine me using air quotes here, mastery, uh, because really mastery should not be measured in terms of percentage. It should be measured in terms of the frequency that we talked about before. All percentages is, as we said, it's a ratio, and it tells you how many of how many, and then you convert to the percent, what is that percentage. The mastery, if you decide what is your criteria, number one, if you're using percent correct, you have what's called an accuracy criteria. What you're saying is, if the person is this accurate engaging in the task, then it's okay. What you don't have is you don't have anything in terms of time. Uh, if we went back to that feeding example, would you accept a person feeding themselves for you know, 45 minutes? Or would it be okay? Again, now this is assuming that the person can physically, you know, I mean, there could be some cases where, you know, if you had some severe issues, it could take you a lot longer to doing things. I'm not suggesting there aren't cases like that. But if you have the requisite skills to feed yourself and a meal should, say, to, should take 10 minutes or whatever the number is, would you accept four to five times that? If your answer is no, then you can't just have an accuracy criterion alone. You have to have the time criterion with it. So you have to decide what is it that is my goal for truly mastering a behavior. And uh, precision teachers believe that you should have a time-based goal. Doesn't mean there can't be some things that are just based off of count, but having time is always gonna give you more information. The second part of your question was, well, if you have adopted uh, a frequency-based measure that you're saying it's not just count, but it's also count and time, 
then you have to put it on your chart and then you have to look at how long is it taking you to make progress towards that goal. If you're in a school system and you're only seeing uh, an OT once a week, you, know, you have to maximize your time and you have to also make plans to get other people involved. If you ever just teach somebody one thing once a week, that's going to have a very low trajectory of getting to the aim. So how is it that you can ramp up other people helping you or getting the person to do more of that or whatever the situation is? And that can be put on the chart too. And you can then, now that you have said, this is what I say is going to be my goal. And now I'm going to look at how fast is it taking that person to move across time. You can look at charts, and sometimes if you, know, if you see that it's the person's not going to make their goal in a whole academic year, that's a problem. You need to yeah. do something different. Fantastic. So I think maybe, Rick, we could go on for a long time here, right? I feel that's another three episodes at least. But <laughs> I, I was hoping what you could do, particularly for OTs, I think many behavioralists out there are going to be familiar with counting and counting correct scenarios but let's take a assisted um, daily living goal perhaps like shoe tying we've done an episode on shoe tying before let's just say an OT rang you tomorrow and said Rick I'm convinced by the podcast I really want to uh, I'm working with a learner I'm teaching him to tie his shoes how do I put that data on a chart so I can see how well I'm doing as a teacher what would be the first thing you'd say to this OT It gets down to what are you counting? You would pinpoint that behavior. That's a precision teaching term that we have. And the pinpoint is what are you counting? Now, you might be counting multiple steps there. Ties, shoe. That is a compound behavior. There are specific elements that you need to have, or steps in this case, you know, um, grab the laces, pull the laces, you know, cross them, pull one underneath the other, uh, whatever, however you, you describe that, you could count the steps of, you know, how many does the person get correct and how long does it take? That's a really simple way to get in and start counting this. So pinpoint the behavior, decide what it is you're counting and, you know, either time it or don't time it. And you'll have a count and you put it on the chart. And let me say this also, when you're doing this, there's a difference between charting your assessment and your practice trials. I see this distinction in precision teaching all the time where people say, hey, what trial should I chart? And what they're doing is if you have a specific way of practicing something, like let's say you want to practice shoe tying and you're, you're charting that, you need an assessment data point. You need a time where you just say to the person, here, go off and do this. I'm not going to help you. That assessment data point tells you how well your practice or your intervention works. You don't necessarily need to chart all of that. I'll see some people that just go crazy in all the things that they're measuring and you can't live your life where your measurement is so burdensome that it's somehow conflicting with the time that you have with the learner. You need to make your measurement and your assessment done well so that it reflects your efforts to understand what you're doing. And the way that people could start is say, how am I going to assess this behavior, assess that person, and then start your teaching. And then as you assess across time, you're going to know, is what I'm doing working or is it not working? Fabulous. That's given, I think, everybody a real good picture into what um, what you do, Rick, first, and also uh, what precision teaching can bring to your teaching and, um, and tell you more about your students. Is there anything else that you wanted to ask Rick before we uh, let him go about his day, Aditi? Uh, I don't want to let him go about his day. <laughs> he will stay here all day. But uh, I think I've been meaning to wrap up for about 20 minutes, but I don't yeah. want to because you've got such valuable information, um, especially as an OT. This is so close to my heart. I just want to add there that when I first was introduced to precision teaching and the chart and transitioning from percent correct, I got a little uh, very uncomfortable. And I was, I was like, and then I got stuck that I could only do it the fit learning way. 
And then I really started understanding the chart and I've learned over the past year how to use it in OT across so many settings. I've used the Likert scale on the chart. I've used different symbols that are relevant to OTs to make it more meaningful to me as an OT. So I'm not taking anything away from OT. I'm just adding this amazing element that's going to give us the integrity and the efficacy of our intervention. So I'm just so passionate about OT and charting. And I'm going to put a plug in there for my Facebook group, which is um, the database OT, where we talk about charting and we are growing. I think last I checked, we've got 400 members. Wow. And I was so shocked when I first, you know, just put the word out there. I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to get Either either my post is going to get taken down or somebody's going to say something nasty. But no, people are hungry. OTs are hungry to show what they can do and to make a difference because that's what we're all in this for, right? ABA, OT, speech, whoever you are. We're not here to be fluffy. We're here to make a difference. Yeah. So thank you, Rick, for allowing us to learn more. Um, in our next episode, we will be continuing our gentle progression into the world of precision teaching and discuss how this simple measurement tool can help all disciplines, maybe A's and OT's, of course, but we all want to maximize our client progress, and the chart can help us do it at an amazing exponential level, 200%, 300%, and it's going to give you a tool that is easy, efficient to use, and it's going to save us all time, especially for OT's. We don't have a lot of time, so this is a key component. Thank you once again, Rig, and I, I want to just keep chatting, but I hope we will have, have you on again. I'm just plugging that out there in great hopes. And remember, everyone, the most valuable resource that we have is each other as therapists. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspective. So hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And Rue from Down Under.